My name's Alec. Sometimes Alec is used as part of an insult, which is an insult I don't mind that much because sometimes you get called a smart Alec. And as insults go, I'd probably be happy to take that. Names are very important to us. Once you've got a name, it sticks with you for life, doesn't it? And if you know someone, I wonder how well you could know them if you don't know their name. And once you know their name, if they wanted to change it, you find it very hard to refer to them anything as anything apart from the name that they already had. And sometimes when we're given names, it's because it's just a name that our parents liked. We usually don't get to choose our own name. Or maybe it's a family name or it means something to them. And so the longer version of my name is Alexander. And I guess if my folks were hoping that I might, I don't know, conquer the known world, they may be a little bit disappointed. But today we're going to look at a man and a book called Joshua. And when we read that, we go, well, that's a nice name. I know a few Joshuas. But Joshua, to anyone who can read Hebrew, which I can't, but if you could, you'd see that it's a name that means God's salvation or God saves. And names are very important to people in the Bible and usually they're given to people and then it's their life's work to live up to their name. So Joshua is a guy who is called God Saves. That's the name of the man, that's the name of the book. That's what we're going to look at today. And if you're wondering how we got here and why we're going to be looking at Joshua, over the last few weeks we've been working our way through the Old Testament. We've been working our way through the whole story from the beginning of everything and then a man called Abraham and then eventually his grandson Jacob whose name's changed to Israel who becomes a whole people who ends up here at the beginning of this story and there is a little bit more to it as we've been going through God creates the world and creates people two people at that stage then sin enters the world after that things descend a little bit and there's the story of Noah where there's a big flood, wipes out most of creation, but God saves one family. Then later on, much later on, there's a man called Abraham and God makes some promises to him. And those promises are very important to what we're going to be looking at today. From there, Abraham's family eventually becomes a whole nation. But that whole nation is living in Israel where they're slaves. God hears their cries, he brings them out of slavery and promises to take them to a land, the promised land. On the way, they stop at Sinai and Moses goes up a mountain with Joshua and is given the law. Then what should happen is they march into the land and that's the end. However, there's a generation that doesn't trust God will keep his promise. So they wander through the desert for 40 years and every single one of those who was over 20 when they didn't go into the land and didn't trust God dies in the desert. But finally, we're at the end of those 40 years. We're on the edge of the promised land, about to cross the River Jordan and to take this land that was promised so long ago. And if you look at our pictures here, we've got creation, we've got the fall, we've got Noah, promises to Abraham, Egypt and the escape from Egypt, the law, some desert and some green grass. And if you were here last week, you'll know that Stu said the grass really is greener on the other side. 
And that's where we're headed today, this land that's been promised for years, nearly 500 years by this stage, and we're marching into it. And there's an old hymn that starts, Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. So we're going to continue this journey. We're at Joshua. And Joshua is not only the sixth book of the Bible, it's the beginning of a section, for those who like to classify these things, of a section called the historical books. And it goes from Joshua all the way to Chronicles. And these books cover a period of roughly a thousand years. But Joshua and all the history that follows is based on everything that's come before in these first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And not just chronologically, but theologically. And none of what happens from now on in the Bible will make any sense to us unless we understand the beginnings of these people who are called Israel. And let's not forget that their name also means struggles with God, which is a pretty good name as we found out for these people. And what we get now is a response to and a development of what we saw in these first five books, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And we've got a whole history that goes on from here for a thousand years. And the history starts pretty well. In Joshua, the people, Israel, enter and possess the land promised to them by God. And that's what we're looking at today. And if we were telling a Disney version of this story, this is the time where we'd say the people entered the land, Joshua was crowned king, everything was great, and they all lived happily ever after. After all, the promised land was where they'd been headed for centuries and now they're here. So we can close the book because that's the end of the story. But we know it isn't the end of the story and it's certainly not the end of the Bible. And as we find out later in this story, much later, Israel is forced to leave this land. Or as Jeremiah puts it in his usual understated way, the land vomits them out because of their sin and unfaithfulness. But for now, we're just looking at Joshua. And instead of thinking about strength and courage and conquest, as we work our way through Joshua, keep in the back of your mind promises, faithfulness and rest. Because in the end, I think that's what Joshua is all about. Now, I don't know how much you know about Joshua, I think most of us know anything about it, maybe from Sunday school. And I think usually we know pretty much only these three things. One is we've probably heard of the Battle of Jericho, where there's all the marching around and trumpets and the walls coming tumbling down. You might even have heard of Rahab, who helps the Israelite, Israelite spies and hangs the crimson banner out the city wall and she's saved. She even makes it, to go in, it, makes it into the genealogy of, genealogy of Jesus. Or maybe you might know a few words from the end of chapter 24 where Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I think for most of it, that about does it for Joshua. But we're going to take a few minutes now to look at this book and see that it's about faithfulness and adventurousness, but also rest. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So let's be strong and courageous and make our way through Joshua. Why is Joshua in the Bible? 
Well, on one level, it serves as a conclusion to everything that's just happened in the first five books. It ties up some loose ends, some loose ends from last week. If you were here, you would have heard about Caleb and Joshua. What happened to those guys? How did all of God's promises about land and nationhood turn out? How did it all end up with those Israelites? And the book boldly starts with after the death of Moses. And by mentioning Moses and his death, we're reminded that a whole generation has failed to enter the promised land because of their unbelief. So in just a few short words, we're reminded that disobedience and a lack of faith has deadly consequences. But now it's a new day. It's a time of rejoicing and we can see that no amount of disbelief, even a whole generation's disbelief, can frustrate God's plans. So here we have a whole nation now on the brink of entering the land that God promised long ago to his people. So Joshua is something of a conclusion to the history and promises that we read in Genesis to Deuteronomy. And it also looks forward to a whole history to come. But really, it's a sermon. It's a sermon of encouragement. And the clues to knowing that this is really what it's about are from the kind of literature it is and how the book organizes, is organised. And it may help us to know that while the church calls Joshua part of the historical books, in the Jewish tradition, the Old Testament is organised differently and Joshua is the beginning of a section known as the former prophets. So the style and interest of the book is prophetic. It's designed to bring people back to God. Now there's clearly a strong historical dimension to these books, but like other prophetic books, they're not simply concerned with recording history for history's sake. Instead, these books are really interested in how God works in the events that they describe. So while we should obviously see that Joshua does record actual historical events, we should understand that when it was written, the reason was primarily theological. And if the theology sounds like a difficult thing for a professional class of people, what we're doing now is theology. Theology was defined by St Anselm, who was a bishop, Archbishop of Canterbury about a thousand years ago. He said, all theology is, is faith-seeking understanding. And that's what we're doing now. Theology is talking and thinking about God. We're doing that, so you're all now theologians. So the next time you bump into someone new, they say, what do you do? I'm a theologian. And Joshua wants to preach to us today about God using history as his text. So Joshua, in the end, is a sermon. And we're going to concentrate on chapter 1, but I'm also going to try and race us through the whole book uh, because it helps to get the context of the whole thing. So we're going to do a little survey. I'm going to race through. I'm just going to do the highlights. First of all, Joshua can be broken into three main sections. Chapters 1 to 12, there's a description of the conquest of the land. Joshua leads the people in to clear out all the bad guys. It's the section where we get stories of Jericho and wars coming down, battles, victories, all the dramatic stuff. Then there's a middle section from 13 to 21 where the land's divided among the tribes of Israel. We see this tribe get this section, that tribe get that section. Then there's the last three chapters, 22 to 24. 
It's Joshua speaking and explaining everything that's happened in his life and everything that's happened in the life of Israel. And Joshua ends much like Deuteronomy ends, with God's chosen leader reminding God's chosen people of God's steadfast love, faithfulness and justice. Now, I'd really like to do every chapter in great detail, but we don't have that much time. But we're going to look at some highlights from from most of the chapters. And we'll start at chapter 1, which we had read to us before by Lyndall, and it opens with a call to courage and strength and to take the land. So it's a call to arms. It's a call to courageous faith. And the first two stops that they're going to have are Jericho and Ai, two very different towns, but in the geography of the place where they're crossing in, One's to the south, one's to the north. So they're going to divide and conquer. Chapter 2, we're introduced to a woman called Rahab. Rahab's not only a Canaanite, but a prostitute. But the way she's spoken of in this book, she's an example of faith and an example of grace. And just maybe she's the only Canaanite worth saving. And if you wanted to read more about Rahab, you can do that. You can turn to the New Testament. You can find her in Hebrews 11, in the chapter of the heroes of faith. She's mentioned in James chapter 2 at the end. And of course, in Matthew 1, where she's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. So the very first story in Joshua is about a woman living a sinful life among a sinful people. And she receives grace. And in the end, that's what God wants for all all of us, that we turn to him so that he can show mercy. Chapters 3 and 4, there's a reenactment of the Exodus. Just like at the Red Sea, the River Jordan is peeled back and God shows that the engine of redemption is cranking up again. And this new generation gets to see for themselves that God acts with great power to save his people. Chapter 5 is about being obedient and being emboldened in their faith. It seems that this new generation has missed at least one, maybe two big things in all their wanderings. They didn't practice circumcision and it's just possible that they hadn't celebrated the Passover. So now they, they do both. And it's after this Passover where they eat the produce of the land that the manna stops. God's been sending manna every day that they've been eating, all the time that they've been wandering in the desert. Now they're in the land, they eat the produce of the land, and that stops. Then there's an interesting part at the end of this chapter where Joshua meets a mysterious man with a drawn sword. And we'll come back to that in a little while. Chapter 6, finally after five chapters... We get to the battle and it makes you wonder if the battle really is the most important thing. But here we have this triumphant victory where the people march around the walls of Jericho, maybe reminding them of their march through the wilderness. And they march 13 times, once every day for six days, then on the seventh day another seven times. And the walls fall down and the city's destroyed. And then there's a stunning reversal. In chapter 7, against a much smaller city with a smaller army, they lose. And it's because of the sin of one man. One man disobeyed God, but the guilt is on the whole community. And that day, God doesn't ride out with them. 
They fight on their own and they lose. And in chapter 8, the man admits his guilt and he's punished and then the people do triumph over I. Chapter 9 has a really strange story where Israel's deceived when the Gibeonites, scared for their lives, come to Israel and claim not to be from the land because they know that every people and every city will fall before the power of Yahweh. So they pretend to be from somewhere else and the Israelites are tricked into a treaty with them because, as the text says, they did not consult the Lord. Chapters 10 to 12, we have a description, first of all, of the defeat of five kings, then simply a list of all 31 kings and cities that have been destroyed. They're all listed for the people to know that this is what God has done for them. And then we're at the end of most of the action. Chapters 13 to 21 describe the land being divided among the tribes and the promises being fulfilled. And in those, there are a few hints at later trouble with a couple of lines at different points that say something like, but they did not drive all the people out of the land. But this section is full of names and places and lists, much like some of the sections of numbers. Then in chapters 22 to 24, Joshua gathers the people and preaches a review. He tells the people, in case they missed it, what was the most important thing during this time? And that's that their promise-keeping God was faithful and kept his promises. So the book's organised like one big sermon and like any good sermon, the hero is God. And what holds all this history together? What's the thread that we can follow through Joshua all the way through? Joshua's message is simply, God always keeps his promises. And related to that, the promise-keeping God demands obedience. So the first sermon from within the promised land is a sermon about God keeping his promises. And it's there to be an encouragement. Because we need a book like this, and Israel needed a book like this. If we jump ahead around a thousand years from Joshua, Israel is kicked out of the land, the promised land, for their unfaithfulness. They're evicted from the land, their homes are destroyed, and they're moved to a foreign country. And they must have been wondering what happened to the promises made to us. And this book reminds them that God always keeps his promises. All of them, even the promise to judge sin and disobedience. And this could be one of our biggest problems. Don't we wonder if God will keep his promises? When things go badly for us, do we start to wonder, is God really good? Does God really care about us? Will he keep his promises? Can God be trusted? And I think that's why there's these 24 chapters of Joshua in the Bible. It's to encourage us to be faithful and to trust because God always keeps his promises. So if we go back to chapter 1. Chapter 1 is a reminder of the promise that God made to give his people a land. In fact, seven times through this chapter we hear that God has promised and still promises to give the people the land. 
And there's four or five other promises mixed in with those as well. In fact, in verse 3, depending on how you translate it, it says, every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have already given you, as I promised to Moses. So all that remains is for Israel to enter the land and every piece of land they possess will be the result of conquest. But whose conquest is it? As it turns out, the land isn't really Israel's by conquest, but by gift. The whole earth belongs to God and he can give any of it to anyone he pleases. And the promise of the land wasn't a new promise to Joshua. It wasn't even a new promise to Moses. It's the fulfillment of a promise made to Abraham close to 500 years before this, that God would give this land to his offspring and that they would be a great nation. So here it is, the great nation about to enter the land. And how did God keep his promises? Well, in Joshua 21, at the end of this book, or towards the end, Joshua says, So God gave Israel all the land he'd sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. This is Joshua's review of everything that's come before. And if you've read Joshua recently, you'll know that Chapters 13 to 21 are pretty dry reading. There's not a lot of action. It's repetitive. It's full of names and lists of names and lists of places. Really doesn't leave anybody out, I don't think. But even if these chapters aren't our favourites, they're a little bit like terms and conditions in a contract or the title deed to your house. They're not much to look at, but the meaning is in what they represent. Joshua was saying, look for yourself. Here's eight chapters of God keeping his promises to every family in every tribe of the people of Israel. Every tribe is singled out and given the land they were promised. But God also promises to give them rest. And back in chapter 1, rest is mentioned twice and when we hear the word rest in the Bible, hopefully our ex exegetical radar goes off and it sends us back to Genesis, where we read that God rests after his work of creation. But then with the introduction of sin into the world, restlessness comes into the world. And from then on, there's unrest between Adam and Eve. There's unrest between their sons, Cain and Abel. Cain ends up killing his brother Abel. And it descends from there between, until there's unrest between everybody. But God's desire is always to give rest back to people. And he even gave us one day of the week to rest, a day to remind his people that to come to God is to rest. God tells Joshua that he's giving Israel the land so that they can have rest. And we know from last week that the generation that died in the desert because of their lack of faith were told that they would not enter his rest. And actually, to be honest, if you've been following the story of Israel in the last few weeks, you've got to wonder whether any of them actually wants to enter into God's rest. Because they keep saying that they want to go back to Egypt and get back to work as slaves but God still keeps his promises to them so again in chapter 21 of Joshua 
that says, The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Now, this rest doesn't last that long. It ends not very long after Joshua dies. And we read later that there's a brief moment of rest mentioned when King David defeats his enemies. And we know that that rest barely lasted until David's death. And we don't hear much about rest for a long time then. But if your exegetical radar is still pinging, you'll remember these words from Jesus in Matthew 11, in verse 28, where where he says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And Jesus there is not talking about the rest from just having a long day. He's talking about that weariness that comes from a series of long days where, and I think we know this, where you've been working on something that's taking a long time and isn't finished. And even though you can rest, you're still weary. And I think anyone who has young kids or has had young kids will know the weariness of getting to the end of a long day knowing the next day will be another long day. And that's the sort of weariness that we need rest from. And that's the sort of rest that Jesus offers. But in Joshua, Yahweh offers the people rest. Then later, the new Joshua, Jesus, who's God incarnate, offers us all rest. The Israelites thought that the land was the object and the end of the promise, but actually it was the presence of God and his rest. And rest really is the essence of salvation. When we stop working to appease God, just stop work and realise that everything has been done by Jesus, then we can rest. So we see that in chapter 21, Joshua says that they have rest. But later in Hebrews, we read in chapter 4 of Hebrews, which is a chapter all about rest for God's people. It goes like this. God again set a certain day calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, and we just heard he had, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So we heard that Joshua gave them rest, but it was limited. It was an anticipation of the permanent enduring rest in Jesus, the new Joshua. So don't harden your heart. Turn to God and find mercy for your soul and rest. So God promises them land and he promises them rest. And further along in chapter 1, he promises them success and prosperity. But this is a particular kind of success. They'll get the land, they'll get rest from their enemies, but the success that they know here is that they will know and understand God. 
That's God's prosperity and success. The measure of Joshua's greatness was not his military prowess or strategy or his leadership skills. Joshua's success was that he trusted and obeyed the God that he knew. And this is where our greatness can be found. Joshua is an encouragement to risk-taking, adventurous faith. Joshua was successful because he didn't divert from the law to the right or to the left. And he didn't divert because he knew that God keeps his promises. And then there's a fourth promise in chapter 1. There's the land, there's rest, there's success. And then there's God's presence. God says, I will be with you, I will never leave you or forsake you. And he keeps that promise too. We read later in uh, Joshua in chapters 3 and 4, the Ark of the Covenant, which is a symbol of God's presence, is mentioned 16 times. When they go to cross the Jordan, their first obstacle, the Ark of the Covenant goes first. It's a reminder that God is leading the people and he gets to their problems before they do. Later in chapter 6, the image is repeated. The Ark of the Covenant and the priests are in the front and centre of the battle. The people can see that God is right there in the thick of the fighting and that he's fighting for them. And if God's presence was assured to Joshua, then how much more to us? God has sent his spirit to live in us and he will never leave us or forsake us. God is with us. And God is not just with us here. Tomorrow when we go to work or to school or to the supermarket or to the doctor or to the park, God says he is with us. But there's always this conundrum. God makes these promises that he knows that the people will be unfaithful. And so how is all this going to work out? Again, if we jump ahead to chapter 23, we hear, it's the Lord your God who has fought for you. And that phrase is repeated throughout Joshua. Joshua reminds the people that it's all about what God is doing, not what we do. Joshua gathers the people in 24 and tells them what the Lord says. And this is what God says. Lots of statements like, I took your father Abraham out. I gave him Isaac. I gave Isaac Jacob and Esau. I sent Moses and Aaron. I afflicted the Egyptians. I brought you out. I brought you to the land of the Amorites. I gave them into your hands. I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. This is all God's plan and God has acted. Joshua understands this and in case he didn't, there's a dramatic moment back in chapter 5 on the eve before they cross the Jordan and march on Jericho. Joshua's been there geeing up the troops, maybe giving some rousing speeches but in verse 13 of chapter 5, we hear that it says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, 
Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message, is, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So Joshua sees a man with his sword drawn and asks him, Whose side are you on? And the man says, No, I'm here to be the commander. You can take my side. So when they head into battle, God is the one doing the fighting. He tells Joshua, do nothing, take off your shoes and be quiet. And whatever picture of God people might have, a strict parent, some kind of policeman, a grand old man, we're always trying to domesticate God and put him in a box, just to be let out maybe when we need him. But God isn't a lucky charm and he isn't a secret weapon. He is what we hear just here, the almighty God whose presence alone demands obedience and humility. And this is the same God who appeared face to face to Moses in a tent and he now appears to Joshua as a warrior. God will be for his people whatever they need at the time. And Joshua needed a warrior who would fight for them. Now, if you've read through Joshua, I think, frankly, there are some troubling elements to the book. We're bothered by this kind of warfare. How can the God we know command the destruction, the total destruction, of entire cities? Nothing was to be left alive when they were finished. And I think we should struggle with this. But we should also remember that the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the other ites weren't innocent victims. Let's remember that they'd been given hundreds of years to repent. And we know that it was possible and that they were capable of knowing and understanding God because in Rahab, one of them does. And later in Jonah, we hear that Nineveh, a whole city, can turn to God and be forgiven. But these people, the Amorites and Canaanites, they sacrificed their children, they forced men and women into prostitution, they sold members of their families as slaves for profit, they killed and tortured their enemies for sport, and they refused to repent, even when they can see that the power of God is heading their way. So now the cup of the Amorites is full and God would be unjust if he didn't judge them. But in all this, we need to see that God's first thought is for mercy. He gave them time to turn to him and if they had repented, God would have forgiven them and spared them like Rahab and her family. And the discomfort we have for some of the things in Joshua is because the conquest, that shows, the conquest that we see shows God fulfilling one more promise. And I think we like this promise a little bit less. 
And that's his promise that he will judge sin. And that anyone who is not on the side of God's anointed, the new Joshua, Jesus, who fought the battle against our real enemies, sin and death, anyone not on his side will be judged and face the consequences. And how did Jesus win? By letting himself be killed. Jesus takes on the forces of evil and darkness and clothes himself in our sin. So the divine warrior dies and wins because God always wins. And we know that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. But he wins for you and you can enter his rest. Then you can fight on his side. And if we're not sure what that fight looks like, let's hear what kind of armour we need to put on. If you want to have a look at Ephesians 6, from verse 10, we hear things like this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows <coughs> of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the kind of armour we need for the battle. And in one last thing, remember in chapter 24 where God lists all the things that he's done, where he says, I did this, I gave that. And we might expect, or maybe hope, that at the end of the list God says, so I do everything and you can just put your feet up. Instead, in verse 14, it says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him. In Joshua, all of these promises are meant to encourage us, but encourage us to act, to be faithful and to be adventurous. We're called to action, even in our rest. And God will be with us. And we know we have work to do, because our vision here at New Life is that we long to see New Life in Jesus come to every home in Oran Park and the greater southwest for their salvation, the good of the community and the glory of God. In order for us to do that, we need to be faithful and adventurous, but also to have God fighting with us. So let's finish the way Joshua finishes. Joshua says, choose this day who you will serve. We have to make our minds up. Choose this day who you will serve, knowing that God always keeps his promises. So onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Amen.